BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. On the hotline, we have our guest of the hour. James Altucher is managing director of Formula Capital and the founder of Stock Picker. James, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm really, uh, I'm really glad to be here. A lot of our listeners will know you because you guys had you and Porter Stansberry had a spirited debate. I don't know. Was that about a year ago or so, where you guys were debating where the Dow was headed on? Uh, yes, I believe it was uh, Yahoo, right? Right on Yahoo Finance. Yeah, and he hates to miss you this week, but we'll have you on in the future. But for the listeners that are new to our show that haven't, you know, really gotten the groove of, you know, listening to Porter and you debate, I want to kind of get, jump into a little bit of background on you because you're a very interesting character. It, Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, actually, it's a very big compliment. So if you don't mind, let's start with a little background. Uh, according to your bio, you had roughly, I guess, what, $15 million in a bank, and within two years... You lost it all, which led you to reevaluate your approach to business and life. Will you tell our listeners a little bit about that and, and how it affected you and how you rebounded? Sure. I was uh, a product of the Internet. I knew nothing of the, about business. Uh, I built up a, a software business in the 90s, which I sold. Uh, and it's funny. I made every decision correctly. You know, through 1999, I, I hedged all my stock positions. And then finally, the bubble fever got to me. And right at the top, I said, you know what, I'm going to buy Internet stocks. And here I had already just made enough money to not worry about anything. And I figured, okay, I not only got rich, I'm going to get rich twice. And then, of course, when you, when you, try, when you think like that, you lose everything, which is what happened to me. So I ended up going from about $15 million to zero very quickly. I think I lost about a million a week in the summer of 2000. And uh, I had to start from scratch, which I did. I completely uh, reinvented my, my career and, and started new. Now let me ask you this. Is it, was it one of those things where were you playing like options and that's why? Or was it you just had no trailing stops? Because these are things that we try to preach discipline on Stansberry Radio. What kind of lessons you, do you have in, there? In 2000, nobody had trailing stops. Okay, like there was so much volatile. I mean, I just remember like the summer of 1999, I also flirted with going broke, and then I tripled my money because the market came back. And so people had no memories of a market crash at that point. Like the last serious one was 1987 so or, or whatever it was. So uh, 
everybody kept thinking, okay, just wait for the fall. It's all going to come back. Well, in the fall, there was a fall. And things kept going down more. And then, of course, you had 2001, and you had 9-11, and then you had in 2002 Enron and WorldCom. Like, things just kept getting worse and worse and worse. There was a recession. You know, specifically in the Internet space, it wasn't just a recession. It was a depression. I mean, everybody lost their job. Right where I was living, in, let's say in a 10-block radius, probably every single Internet company went out of business. So uh, it was really unpleasant, and it was unexpected. So I didn't have any discipline at all. Now, zero. You're, an, you're a very emotionally honest person, and, and your blog reads with that, and, and I like that. I like that you tackle subjects that people don't really like to talk about. This had to have devastated you uh, somewhat emotionally. How do you change your mindset, and how do you come back from something like that? Well, it did devastate me incredibly. I mean, I lost my home. I lost everything really i i had and i thought you know you, you money gives you this false sense of immortality so i also lost that sense in fact it becomes the exact opposite suddenly you feel like you're going to to die every day or or lose a loved one every day and it just was a really horrible feeling and you're you're on the floor like you you, you know i thought i had gotten lucky with the internet and i felt the internet was over so there was no way to come back. I was never, ever going to come back. And I just kept telling myself that in my head. But the way you get up off the floor is very, you know, as, as they say, one step at a time. So I determined for myself on four different levels, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual, I was going to set small incremental goals for myself every day, and I was going to hit all of those goals. So physical, it might be as simple as just simply sleep the night, like don't pace at 3 in the morning worrying. So try to sleep 8, 9 hours a day, or eat a little better, or exercise a little. So bit by bit, I was trying to get my health back physically. Emotionally, don't be around people who are going to be jealous of you. Be around people who are going to be positive or inspiring. Mentally, I sat down with a pad every single day, and I started writing down new business ideas for myself. For the first month or two or for the first six months, I must have written down 2,000 bad ideas. But then I started coming up with good ideas. The, the mental muscle is atrophies if you, don't, if you don't use it, so I had to rebuild it. And then, finally, the, the spiritual muscle. Instead of regretting my losses every day, I had to learn to be, to be grateful for what I had and to, to be thankful for what I had. So it doesn't mean thankful to a higher power. It just means being, being thankful even to yourself. So, so these, these steps, these categories, got me off the floor and finally got me, after probably about a year and a half, two years, starting new businesses and coming up with new ideas and and getting success back. Yeah, I, I've experienced some of those times in my life, and, and I always go back to one thing whenever things fall apart, and that's get into action mode. You know, don't feel sorry for yourself. you gotta you got to work your way back into it and build that confidence back up. So that's good advice for our listeners. Yeah, I, you know what, Aaron, I, and this is Frank Curzio here, uh, and I definitely agree. One of the things that is a great story, one of the things that you said is 1999, it, there was a lot of false false negatives where people thought, okay, this was it, this was it. And like you said, you, you know, the market roared back until like 2000. 
How do you compare that to today's market where so many people, you know, you got the Rubinis and Dents is saying, you know, the ultimate crash is coming. It's going to be worse in 2008, 2009. And I'm sure you, you, you're doing real well now. I know you are based on, on some of the business you started that I'm familiar with because I worked with you uh, at thestreet.com. Uh, what are you seeing in the market conditions now? That's Is it compared to 1999, 2000 where investors should be real worried here? Well, you know, it's funny. Rubini and I were both on CNBC's box. I think it was July 5th. 2010, when the market was falling apart, and that was the low of the market at that time. Like, like, and he was saying the market was going to crash another 20%. I said it was going to go straight up, and the market did go straight up. And even right now, even though it's had a lot of volatility this year, we're kind of near, you know, multi-year highs. So, uh, uh, you know, sometimes the market doesn't always correspond with the economy. Like, by many metrics, stocks are cheap. You know, you have companies like Apple, if you back out the cash and you look at next year's probable earnings, it's trading for nine times earnings. I mean, should a company that's growing earnings 100% a year uh, trade for nine times earnings? Probably not. But what people are going through is different than 2000. What we're seeing here is not just kind of a, a sort of muddle through economy, but we're also ex- experiencing a decade of post-traumatic stress syndrome as a society. So we've been through 9-11, the dot-com bust, corporate corruption, then the 2008 financial crisis, which was just horrific, and even minor incidents like the flash crash. You know, why would anybody have confidence in stocks at this point? You, you, there's, you know, basically most people making money in stocks are criminals. You know, so unless you hold for a really long time, like a Warren Buffett or a Bill Gates, or unless you trade trillions of trades a second, like these high-frequency traders, it's, you're going to get chopped up in the middle. And that's where most people find themselves. Now, James, you're an advocate of the idea that parents shouldn't send their kids to college. And we talk about on Stairsbury Radio a lot how it's a complete racket that, you know, they changed the bankruptcy laws in 05, and just miraculously the government started taking over all the loan programs, and now they're – you know, they handle like 98% of all the loans. But you have some other kind of compelling reasons other than money holding them back. Uh, tell us, our listeners, as to what those reasons are. Well, well, first and foremost, though, let's discuss not that college and education is a financial decision, but every dollar spent is an investment. You want to make sure you get more than a dollar's worth of value back. Everybody wants a deal and wants to make a good investment. Buy low, sell high. So when you do spend or borrow $200,000 to go to college, how many 18-year-olds are really equipped to make the decision that, okay, I'm going to decide now to go into debt for the rest of my life uh, in pursuit of an education I don't know if I'm going to use to try to get a career that I'm probably going to tra- change 20 times by the time I'm 40, which is just a normal way of life is that people change careers throughout their life. No 18-year-old is equipped for that. So what happens is these 18-year-olds graduate at the age of 23 because, by the way, the average number of years to get through college is five. They, they graduate when they're 23, and now they're indentured servants to the U.S. government for the rest of their lives because you're no longer allowed to uh, write off your student loan debt in a bankruptcy. The government, who, which lends you the money, has blocked you from declaring bankruptcy to get rid of that uh, debt. So people are just... People graduating now are really in big trouble. They, they are not going to be able to pay back their debt 
The other day, I went all over NYU interviewing uh, college students, actually. I haven't written about this yet. And I spoke to one girl who was graduating with a degree in philosophy, and she said her goal was to get a great job and use half her paycheck to pay back her debt for the next 30 years. So huge assumptions. A, that she was going to get a great job. She wasn't going to get a great job. Nobody's getting a great job. And B, that she was going to be able to use half her paycheck to pay down her debt. That's completely unreasonable. You know, you all, you, there's nothing left to live on. And then when I asked her um, what her ideal job would be, she described a job that she said her brother had. And it turns out her brother didn't go to college. So her actual ideal job was being held by somebody who didn't even get a college degree and had no debt. So that's the direction the world is going to go in, is that you need to, people need to learn how to learn on their own. College won't teach you how to learn how to learn. College won't teach you how to fail. College won't teach you how to have ideas. College won't teach you how to sell those ideas. So these are the things you need to learn to be a success in life, not, you know, what year was Charlemagne born or, you know, the, the complete works of Shakespeare. None of these things will help you in, in life. And you can go to the library and read those things on your own. More importantly is to learn how to learn and then start your life, start your career, start having adventures, which you could talk about and give you experiences. Start experiencing life, and that's where the real education is. Yeah, I was going to add a Part C. She had a philosophy degree, and I'm pretty sure you don't get paid to be sophists anymore like, uh, you know, back in the <laughs> days of Socrates, right? Well, you know, you know, a philosophy degree is often like a precursor to a law degree, but right. we're, we're glutted by lawyers already in the society, so even lawyers don't make enough money to pay back their, their debt, and they have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt by the time they graduate law school. And let me tell you, I've, written, I've, I've been involved in lots of deals. I've written the legal agreements on my last five deals. I wrote the legal agreement on my divorce, and I wrote my own will. So I, the only time I think I need a lawyer is if I'm ever actually in front of a, a judge and jury, and hopefully that never happens. Uh, if I get divorced with my wife, I, I could use you as a lawyer? Yeah. As, as long as uh, as long as I don't have to file it actually with the judge, I could certainly uh, tell you what I did and share my agreement. All right, cool. Let's get some stock stuff here. Uh, uh, big controversy with Google. You've you've been riding Google, saying that you know I've read that you think stocks going to go to fifteen hundred in March. You wrote that the stock could go to zero. Was the headline. Uh, yeah. Explain this a little bit because and it's not that you, you know you use drastic news to change your mind, which is perfectly fine. But why why are you changing your mind? Why do you think Google could be in big trouble here? Well, well, by the way, I didn't change my mind. I said why Google could go to zero, uh, and I don't think that's what will happen because I think you know, I'll basically describe w w what my reasoning was. Uh, there's a company called Bringo, uh, V R N G, which uh, holds the patent on essentially uh, what we could call what we now call Google AdSense and AdWords. And so they're quite correctly suing Google for a percentage of their profits that they've gained that Google has gained over the past 10 years. And they're also suing uh, four of Google's customers, AOL, Target, Interactive Corp and one other whose whose name escapes me. So if if Google uh, so I do think my own personal opinion and I'm not a lawyer, as I just mentioned, but I've uh, done a lot of research on the case. I've talked to patent lawyers. I've been, I've gone through all the dockets on the case. I've gone through the history of the court and so on. Uh, my personal opinion is Google's going to lose this case. They lost drastically on the Markman hearings. AOL has already settled uh, part of the case. 
which essentially says AOL CEO Tim Armstrong, who's from Google, has agrees that these patents are valid. Uh, so Google's going to settle. The question is, how much are they going to settle for? I, I don't think Google's going to go to zero because I think Google's going to go to, to is going to settle with the company. Now, if Google allows themselves to lose this case and allows all of their customers to be sued, that would put Google in trouble. But common sense suggests that Google's not going to do that. They're they're a smart company. Now you're looking at Veringo, and the first thing that stands out to me is you know stock's three seventy five here. It has a twenty two million dollar market cap. I mean, for someone that's suing Google that you think uh, you know ha- could have a lot of success, I mean, it has to be a screaming buy here, right? We talk about Google, and we talk about a twenty two million dollar market cap company, right? Yeah, it, it's a screaming buy because they're gonna they're gonna make potentially you know a billion plus from Google. And if you look at other patent cases like VHC, which won. Uh, 125 million from Microsoft in a patent case, and the stock went instantly to 1.25 billion. So it's a screaming buy here. Uh, they just completed the merger with the company that held the patents, so the market cap's a little higher than 22 million, but not, you know, it's not over 100 million, I don't think. But uh, uh, I still think this could be a 10x from here once once Google actually settles the case. And I do think it should be, you know, it, it has been kind of on and off moving up. Uh, you know, particularly since I originally pointed out the patent lawsuit in an article. But, uh, you know, the other important thing to remember is that a very large shareholder and part of the Ringo t- legal team is Don Stout. The, the individual who won, um, in his old company, NTP, uh, he won $625 million in a patent lawsuit with RIM that nobody thought he was going to win, but he did. And he pocketed that money. So he's come out of retirement and Ringo is, is his case. Yeah, it sounds like a nice speculative stock uh, yeah, with great information. I did read you, your article on your blog, which was fantastic. And, uh, yeah, I suggest everybody go ahead and do that. Now, let's turn to, to Apple here. Uh, Apple, you've had a $1,000 target on it. I'm going to give you a lot of credit here because you said $1,000 when the stock was at three, dollars at, you know, It's a, a double just about now. It's six and change. Uh, what is your, your, your view in the future? You talked about Apple earlier. We all know about the cash position. We all know about the products coming out, the, the new iPhone, the new iPad. Uh, but yet you also have to be aware, which I know you are, that once companies hit this $500 billion mark, this market cap, whether it's Microsoft was, was believe it or not, people forget Microsoft was, was I won't say they're the Apple, but at this time, you know, Cisco as well, these were the big companies yeah. that looked like they were going to grow forever. And Apple's approaching that where will the company see slower growth maybe three, four years from now? Or do you think, you know, thousands definitely on its way? Well, you know, the difference between, let's take Cisco as an example. When Cisco hit a $500 billion level, it was probably trading for 200 times earnings. Apple is trading for something like nine times forward earnings when you back out the cash. So I, it's a very different picture. If it were to trade at 200 times forward earnings, I don't know what that makes it. It's a 20x from here. So, uh, you know, we're talking ridiculous numbers then. That's why I almost think a trillion is not so ridiculous because you can make an argument for two, three, four trillion. I'm just saying a, a trillion, and then let everybody will calm down. Now, I do think the one the one problem I do see in Apple's strategy is that they won't admit that a hybrid uh, laptop tablet is kind of coming sooner or later, whether they make it or not. And we're starting to see signs of this with the Microsoft Surface. Like, why don't you make a MacBook Air that has a touchscreen, 3G, and you can fold in the keyboard? And suddenly, you have a laptop tablet. They won't do that because they don't want to cannibalize uh, either laptop or iPad sales, 
And this is my one concern that is going to, to hurt them. That said, I think in the short term, we have the mini iPad probably coming out in September. That's going to be a huge win. I'm probably going to buy two of them just for myself. Uh, you have the iPhone 5 that's going to eventually come out. So I think there's a lot of short-term reasons to think that earnings are going to, again, grow somewhere between 50 and 100%. And how much cash can a company have? I mean, eventually it'll have a trillion dollars in cash, so it'll be worth a trillion dollars. No, it's a good point. Also, it's a good point about the Surface because that was something I noticed. That that's something that, that I would like to buy. I don't know if it's specifically the Surface, but just something that does have the keyboard or capability of having a keyboard. I think that's an interesting idea, really. But, yeah, uh, I mean, I have, I have an iPad and a Bluetooth keyboard for it, but it's just not as good as if you have the full, you know, operating system working for you. I mean, the iPad operating system is, is good for a tablet, but not for a laptop, whereas the Surface is going to have, you know, Windows 8 on it. Uh, the, the last question here is, what is your best technology idea? Not necessarily a stock, but maybe a theme. Uh, you know, I mean, we see big data developing into, you know, business intelligence. Amazing how they, you know, all this data coming in from social media, uh, people are using, putting algorithms, and able to predict future spending patterns. I mean, amazing stories on that. Yeah, we have cloud computing as well. I mean, what, what are the big themes from, from in technology from someone who, who's been, you know, investing in technology stocks for almost all your career and has started technology companies? Well, you know, it's funny. I am a big investor in some big data companies. In fact, uh, a company where I did, uh, I was a, one of the seed investors, Vinod Kosla, who's a big data investor, uh, just put in $15 million, a company called Bitly, which does the URL shortening, but they account for about 1% of all traffic on the internet right now. So they're, they have enormous data in their, in their database. And to be honest, I'm not sure about big data. Like, big data's been around for a while, and I haven't seen anybody do anything interesting with it. I, I, I ask people, just tell me what next week's box office numbers will be, and nobody can do it. Tell me who's going to win the election. Nobody really can do it. So what good is all this data? So I'm not as hugely convinced on big data as many other people are, but I do think we are in inning one of how social media is going to affect and change our lives. And so uh, it's not a rocket science play, but I do uh, invest in a lot of companies that uh, provide social media services to, let's say, Fortune 500 companies or small businesses. Like companies are just beginning to realize, like, in 1995 they needed a website. Now you need a Facebook presence. Now you need techniques to develop engagement with your customers. Now you need analytics to understand the relationships with your customers, and, and so on. So I think we're in inning one, inning two of that, which is why you're seeing Oracle buying companies like Vitru, Salesforce.com, buying Buddy Media, which I was an investor in, uh, Oracle bought Involver, Google just bought Wildfire, which is amazing. Wildfire specializes in Facebook marketing. Google's buying it to kind of hedge their Google Plus bet. So I think this is an interesting space right now. And if you're looking to start a company, I think it's an interesting space because it doesn't cost that much to basically go to your next the businesses next door and say, hey, I'll set up a Google fan page for you and maintain it. All right. We have one more question for you, James, and then we'll let you on. We really appreciate your time. You're a publishing machine, and your latest effort is FACME, F-A-Q-M-E. Yeah. And uh, essentially what it is is a compilation of tweets of the best questions of your followers. Yes. What, give a couple examples of some of the things that you, you expand upon and, and how people can uh, find this and buy it. Uh, so, so, yeah, so the, the, uh, the book's called Fact Me, F-A-Q Me, 
And uh, I hold a Q&A session every Thursday from 3.30 to 4.30 p.m. on Twitter. It's what I call appointment tweeting. And people can ask me any question they want. So whether it's about the economy, finance, marriage, divorce, depression, dating, uh, anxiety, whatever. And I don't say I'm an expert on any of these things, but I've been through, just like all of us, we've been through it all. So I just give my own answers as long as people are asking questions during that time. And then I expand on them in blog posts and expand on them further in uh, that book, for instance. And I'll probably do uh, another, another book that's a sequel to that. So uh, basically, I answer everything. And, you know, there's similar questions to how you just asked, like, how do you get off the floor after getting hurt by a series of failures? Or how do you, what do you do if uh, your spouse, male or female, is, is cheating on you? Or well, where's the economy going? It feels really scary to me. Or uh, what do you think of global warming? So I'll, I'll answer my opinion, give my opinions on, on anything. And then in blog posts, I'll usually back it up with, some facts and research that I do. All right, and I'm sure people can go to your blog or your website, jamesaltature.com. Is that where people can buy it? Yes, yes. That's great. We'll also put that link up on our site that will have your bio. I will definitely buy this book. Excellent. Well, well, good. And uh, thanks again for having me on the show, and uh, I look forward to my next appearance here. Sure, we'll have you back Stansberry in the future. Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique, and Stansberry Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansberry Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansberry Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.